Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. I'm always blessed in this particular chapel because we recognize at the end someone that is passionate about sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, but then we also recognize these wonderful ladies, uh, many of whom, uh, as you just heard, are not here. We have some, thank God, are in the area that we're able to take the courses and serve in very important ministries, uh, but the overwhelming majority of those ladies that we just acknowledged are literally scattered around the world uh, with their families, uh, taking the gospel to those uh, uh, who almost all are either unengaged or, or unreached people groups. And I just thank God and rejoice in that. I want to uh, invite you to join me again in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. As we came to the last chapel service, thinking both about the incarnation and also about international missions, uh, the Lord led me to a text that I have not uh, ever preached from here in this chapel and actually have not preached from in, in many, many, many years. Part of the problem is there's so much there. How, how do you do justice to the 18 verses of John's prologue in about 30 to 35 minutes? And I have no illusions that I will be able to do that this morning, especially when you hear my title, 12 Wonderful Truths from the Prologue of the Gospel of John. And you said 12, I said 12, so that means I need to quit yakking and get to the text. So, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Uh, when you come to the New Testament, you discover that there are four great Christological texts that provide uh, what I call the building blocks of a biblical and faithful Christology. One, of course, is Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, where we are told that our Lord is the morphe, the form, the very essence of God, and the emphasis there falls upon his humiliation. A second text is found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, where we are told that he is the icon, the very image of God, and the emphasis falls upon creation, though we should note that creation is also a theme that you find in John chapter 1. And in a third great Christological text, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, there we are told he is the exact imprint, the caricature of God, and the focus there falls upon the issue of revelation. So, the idea of his humiliation, the idea of his creation, the idea of his revelation are found in those three important texts. But the fourth is our text this morning where the focus falls upon the doctrine of the incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and here... John uses the word logos, word, to describe the one who has always existed, the one who made everything that has ever been made, and the one who became flesh and showed us the glory of God. Don Carson has said that the prologue of John is a foyer, I would use the word, an introduction 
to the rest of the fourth gospel because all of the major themes that you find in John's gospel, their seed is right here in these first 18 verses. And even in English, it reads in a rhythmic kind of a way. And many New Testament scholars have made the argument that actually the prologue of John is arranged chiastically. And I think there is indeed some support for that. Those of us that have ever read these verses know that the depth of this passage is deeper than the ocean, and yet at the same time, its basic truths can even be understood by a little child. The bottom line is this. The prologue teaches us that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, and all who receive and believe in him become a child of God. That is at the very heart and soul of these 18 verses. I think the words of C.S. Lewis in his classic Mere Christianity are especially helpful in the context of John's prologue. He writes, and I quote, among the Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now, let us get this clear. Among pantheists, Anyone might say that he is a part of God or one with God. There would be nothing very odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. God in their language meant the being outside the world who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. And so what I want to do is walk us through these 18 verses and simply highlight 12 magnificent truths for our Christmas or our Advent reflection. Number one, the Word has always existed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That phrase, in the beginning, immediately makes a connection in the mind of a Jewish person to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, when time began and the universe came into existence. And John's point is this, when time began and when the universe came into existence, the Word was already there. Verse 2 simply repeats the truth of verse 1, he, that is the Word, was in the beginning with God. Now, John uses this very interesting word, logos. It's rich in meaning, and though we often reflect upon it theologically and philosophically, I think John had a different agenda altogether. He uses the word logos evangelistically. Uh, he uses the word logos missiologically. He is thinking in crossed cultural categories when he uses the word logos. F.F. Bruce is right. To the Jews, the word of God, quote, denotes God in action especially in creation and revelation and deliverance or salvation. Don Carson adds, but to the Greek, logos is the rational principle by which everything exists. But for the Greeks of John's day, the logos was not a person. The logos was impersonal, and the logos in their way of thinking was unreachable. It certainly would not become incarnate, making contact with evil or inferior matter. And yet John says that is exactly what the Logos did. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And so John begins by simply noting that the Logos has always existed. 
It was never as the fourth century heretic Arius said, there was once when he was not. No, the word, the Logos, has always existed. Number two, the word is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, it's important that when we read that phrase that we remind ourselves this is a Jewish person writing to a Jewish audience. And so, the Word was with God, proston theon. The idea is the Word was in a face-to-face relationship with God in the most intimate kind of a way. But then he goes on to add, and the Word was God, a clear an unambiguous declaration of the deity of the Word. There are a number of important theological observations that we can make from that very simple phrase. I'll just highlight five very quickly. Number one, the Word, the Son of verse 14, is distinct in some way from God the Father, who is also mentioned in verse 14. Secondly, though distinct from the Father, it's very clear that the Son, the Word, is equal to the Father in His deity. In other words, whatever it is that makes God, God, the Word is all of that. If God is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, if God is eternal and immutable and holy and just and righteous and all the things that we think about when we think about our God, the Word, the Son, Jesus Christ, He is all of that. Therefore, the Word that is the Son is co-equal with God. The Word, the Son, is co-eternal with God. And the Word, the Son, is consubstantial with the Father. The Word is not some of God. The Word is not even mostly God. He is fully and completely God. That's why Jesus can say in John chapter 10 and verse 30, the Father and I are one. And that's why he can say again in John chapter 14 and verse 9, he who has seen me, he has also seen the Father. Number three. The Word is the Creator. Look at verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That particular phrase also recalls Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, as well as Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And again, at this point, it's really good for us to apply a little philosophical logic. If He made everything that has been made, He himself cannot be a creature. Note again, the text says all things, not some things, all things, not most things. And once more, I would remind us, this is a Jewish author writing to a Jewish audience who would have immediately made a connection of the Word with the God who creates in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. In other words, To say that the Word is the Creator is the same thing as to say that the Word is God. Number four, the Word gives us life. Look at what John writes in verse four. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The word life occurs 43 times in John's gospel. The word light occurs 16 times in John's gospel. They are very closely connected themes, almost always in the context of salvation. Although here I would add, because of the context of creation in verses one through three, that idea is also probably present as well. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Is Jesus really the source of life? Well, let's just ask Lazarus and Mary and Martha, for in John chapter 11, Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Is he the source of eternal life? Well, again, hear his words to Thomas in John chapter 14 and verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And if you want to see that theme developed out even more fully, just go to John chapter 5 and start with verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He, has not, he, he does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Same chapter, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The word gives us life. Number five, the word provides powerful spiritual light. Again, verse four, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness it has not overcome it. As spiritual life, the word is also the source of spiritual light. In other words, he is the one who gives sight both to uh, physically blind eyes, but also to spiritually blind eyes. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Is he the light of the world? Just ask the blind man in John chapter 9. He opened both his eyes physically. He opened his eyes spiritually. And that wonderful statement in chapter 9 and verse 25 when he simply says, who he is, I don't know, but one thing I do know, once I was blind, but now I see. As you work your way through the Gospel of John, beginning here in the prologue, you discover that we are a world, we live in a world that is blinded by darkness, a word that occurs twice there in verse 5. The idea of darkness in John's Gospel speaks of things like death, evil, judgment, unbelief, and wickedness. That's why Jesus himself says in John chapter 3 and verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Again, in John chapter 12 and verse 46, the Lord says, I've come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. And so the light shines forth in the word. It is a light that 
draws attention to his action of creation, but also it draws attention to his action as Savior. And I love verse 5, the light is continually shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This light cannot be beaten. This light will be triumphant. This light will be victorious. This light will beat down the darkness. Number six, the greatest man who ever lived bore witness to the word. Look at what he says in verses six through eight and then also verse 15. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Interestingly, in John's gospel, he does not have to identify him as John the Baptist. He came as a witness, mark that word. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And then verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, you say you in your outline said the greatest man who ever lived bore witness to the word. Where in the world did you get that idea? From Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, truly I tell you, among those born of woman, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. The text says John was sent by God as a witness. The word witness occurs 28 times in the Gospel of John, more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined. It is the Greek word martyreo, or it comes from the root martyreo. Interestingly, that word is also sometimes translated testify, and sometimes it's translated testimony. It occurs 47 times in one form or another in the Gospel of John. And what does he say? That John was sent by God as a witness that what? That all might believe, a word that occurs 43 times in the Gospel of John. Here we see very clearly what I call a universal invitation, but a limited application. The goal is, the prayer is that all would believe and receive the gift of eternal life, but one must believe and receive to enjoy that gift. Now, I could spend the rest of this morning bringing a message about John the Baptist and what the text says about him, but I'll just again highlight very quickly seven things I saw about John in this text. Number one, John the Baptist was a man, not the Messiah. Verse six, there was a man sent from God. Secondly, John the Baptist was a witness. He was not the word. Verse seven, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Number three, John the Baptist was a lamp, but he was not the light. Jesus actually uses that word lamp to talk about John in chapter five and verse 35. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, verse eight. Number four, John the Baptist was a prophet, but he was not the savior. Number five, John the Baptist was a servant, he was not the son. Number six, John the Baptist was important, but he was not indispensable. Verse 15, this he said of him, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me, which leads me to my seventh observation about John the Baptist. He had a crucially significant position. 
but he was not supremely preeminent. Jesus was before him in time, or at least the Son was before him in time, and therefore the Son is also greater than John in position. And you know, brothers and sisters, almost everything I just said about John the Baptist can be applied to you and to me in our global missions assignment. And recently I was reading an article by our provost, Dr. Ashford, who actually picked up on some of the themes in John's prologue and related them to the political confusion and, and chaos of our day and did so in the context of our witness and of our missionary assignment. And though you might find it odd, I think it quite applicable at this point. Listen to what Bruce wrote. Christian missionaries moved their families overseas at great financial cost, sometimes risking their own lives in high-risk environments for one reason, they genuinely care about the people to whom they will minister. Now, as Christians in the public square, we must exhibit the same genuine concern for the people with whom we discuss and debate public matters. Politics should be done out of a desire for the common good rather than merely to humiliate or crush the people with whom we disagree. And I would quickly add, both uh, Democrats and Republicans would be well-served to listen to that statement. A good way to think about this is in terms of truth and grace. Truthful words without a gracious disposition makes us political bullies and jerks. I like the use of that sophisticated word, Dr. Ashford, jerks. Gracious disposition without truthful words make us political wimps and non-entities. But truth and grace together, that wonderful combination exhibited by our Lord, enables us to break society's ability to classify us and dismiss us as the hypocritical and bigoted special interest arm of a given political party. We learn much about how we engage this world missiologically from John the Baptist. Number seven. The Word came into the world He created, verse 9 and verse 10. The true light, think of the light of Genesis 1 here, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. Now, verse 9 actually anticipates verse 14 when it says the true light was coming into the world. And he says that the true light, that is the real light, number one, has come into the world, mentioned 61 times in John's gospel. And secondly, it enlightens everyone. Now, that phrase has been very problematic and very troubling to both biblical scholars and theologians. What does he mean when he says that this light was coming into the world and it enlightens everyone? Well, I looked at it at some length, and the best I came across was what, this, uh, what John, Don Carson said about this. I think his insight is helpful. What is at stake in this phrase is the objective revelation, the light that comes into the world with the incarnation of the Word. In other words, it speaks of the invasion of the true light. It, the true light, shines on every man and divides the race. In John's gospel, it is repeatedly the case that the light shines on all and forces a 
distinction. I would even add it forces a decision. The light shines upon every man, whether he sees it or not. And so John says the true light who gives life came into the world, the Greek word cosmos. John amplifies, he made the cosmos, and yet amazingly, the cosmos, and here in this context, probably the cosmos of humanity, did not know or recognize its creator. But verse 10 and verse 11 teach us it gets even worse. Number eight, the word was rejected by the world and uh, his own people. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own, and people is implied rightly here in the ESV, and his own people, they did not receive him. John's point is simply this. The the word came to what rightly belongs to him as its creator, but it did not know, it did not recognize its maker. Again, I think the world of humanity is particularly in view. Verse 11 is even more specific, isn't it? He came to his own people, the Hebrews, the Jewish nation of Israel, and yet they rejected him. They did not receive him. He came to his own home, and they would not welcome him in. The life came, but they preferred death. The light came, but they preferred darkness. The world belongs to Jesus, and Israel especially belongs to Jesus. And yet both of them said, we don't want you. Number nine, the word makes us children of God when we receive and believe in him. Verse 12, I believe, is the soteriological or salvation apex of the prologue. It's one of the clearest and most simple statements in all the Bible about how it is that one is saved. Look at it. We'll just walk through it very quickly. But to all, no exclusion, to this declaration and promise, all are invited. But to all who did receive him who believed. In John's gospel, receiving him and believing in him are basically synonyms. You trust in him. You have faith in him. But to all who did receive him who believed in his name, this person, uh, who he is and what he does. As you walk through the remainder of John's gospel, you discover that what he does is live a sinless life. What he does is miraculous works. What he does is he dies for us. He is buried for us, and he is raised again from the dead for the forgiveness of our sin. John's purpose statement is actually found in chapter 20 and verse 31, and it provides a very nice compliment to what we read here in verse 12. There, John writes, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so John says, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave them the right, the exousia, the authority to become children of God. Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 4 informs us that we become God's children through the wonderful grace of adoption. And then verse 13 is crystal clear, isn't it? This is not something you accomplished. This is not something that I accomplished. But salvation, regeneration, conversion is a sovereign act of a sovereign God. 
When I was a little boy, we uh, at our church got involved in a back then home mission board evangelistic campaign, and the campaign had as its theme, uh, I found it. And the idea was I had found salvation. Well, I understand the intent of that, but theologically it's totally inaccurate because you didn't find it, he found you. You weren't looking for him, you weren't searching for him. He came on a search and rescue mission and he found you. And if you doubt it, just read verse 13, who were born, born again, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I don't see how you could find a clearer statement about the sovereign, gracious act of salvation that from beginning to end is the work of our God. Number 10, the Word became human and lived among us, and we saw His glory. If verse 12 is the soteriological apex of the prologue, verse 14 is the Christological apex, and the Word became flesh, sarks, and he dwelt among us, eskinosin. He, he pitched his tent among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. This verse teaches us that though there was a time, now listen to me carefully, though there was a time when Jesus was not, there has never been a time when the Son was not. There's a distinction there, but a theologically accurate one. Though there was a time when Jesus was not. Jesus came into existence via the incarnation. But there's never been a time when the Son was not. The Word, the Logos, became flesh. You know, the Greeks were actually onto something in their concept of the Logos. It was simply incomplete. John's use, as I mentioned earlier, of logos is brilliant. It is a masterful bridge word that allows him to speak both to a Jewish and also to a Greek culture. The best way to summarize it is this. The term itself was well known, but John will fill this term with new meaning. You see, to the Greek, the logos was reason and an it. In John's Logos, in John's prologue, the word is not an it. The word is a person. The Greek Logos was up there, unreachable, beyond us. We could never, ever truly know it. And yet John amazingly says, no, the Logos came down here and we saw him. John's Logos indeed is God's personal, visible communication to humanity in his revealing and redeeming power. Logos does not explain Jesus the Christ the Son. Jesus Christ the Son explains the Logos and fills it with new meaning. The Logos became Sarks, a man. It dwelt among us. It pitched its tent. He pitched his tent among us. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases it this way, the word became flesh and blood and he moved into our neighborhood. I like that. The word became flesh and blood and he moved into our neighborhood. And what did we see? We saw the glory, the glory is of the monogonous, the only begotten son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. John Piper says it well, when you watch Jesus in action, you watch God in action. When you hear Jesus teach, you hear God teach. 
When you come to know what Jesus is like, you know what God is like. Number 11, the Word brought us grace and truth. Verse 14, verse 16, and verse 17. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, and from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace for... The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 14 tells us the word is full of both grace and truth. Verse 16, as I just read, tells us that of this fullness we have received grace upon grace. In other words, the glory of God is revealed in John's prologue in the incarnation in connection with his grace and also with his truth. In other words, those who are God's children, by receiving him and believing him, receive grace upon grace, or if you like, blessing upon blessing, or if you like, waves of grace after waves of grace. They just keep on coming and they never end. Again, John Piper says it very well. God is gracious to us and true to himself. Now, that's important. God is gracious to us and true to himself. Therefore, when his son comes, he is full of grace and truth. When Christ died, God was true to himself because sin was punished. And when Christ died, God was gracious to us because God bore the punishment, not us. Now, most all of you by now have taken hermeneutics or Bible exposition. And so it's very important here that we read verse 17 in the context of verse 16, or we may misinterpret and think wrongly about the goodness of the law given through Moses. So look at it again, verse 16. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace for... One aspect of that grace was the law given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, what is John getting at? I think this is what he's saying. The law was a gift of grace and truth, but Jesus Christ is another and even greater gift of grace and truth. In other words, Moses gave us a good gift of grace and truth, but Jesus Christ gave us a different and even better gift of grace and truth. Again, I can't improve upon what I came across in my study from a message by John Piper. It just says it so well. Moses may have mediated the best gift he could, recording the law. But John 1.18 says that vastly superior to that is the presence of God himself. As the end of verse 18 says, making God known, narrating God. Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. Jesus himself was lifted up, John 3, 14. Moses gave the manna from heaven, but Jesus himself was the true bread from heaven, John 6, 32. Moses wrote about Christ, John 5, 46, but Christ was Christ. Thus, the law of Moses was the word of God, but Christ was God the word. That is the sort of contrast John wants us to see. The whole point is the vast superiority of Jesus over Moses. And the focus is on seeing the glory of God. Now, this is so good. Moses glimpsed the back of God's glory. 
But Jesus shows us the fullness of God's glory. And there is an infinite qualitative difference between Moses, the pointer to grace, and Christ, who is the performer of grace. Number 12, the Word exegeted for us the glory of the Father. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. No human in their fallen state has ever could or ever will be able to look upon undiminished deity and live. John's simple affirmation finds support both in the Old Testament, Exodus 33:20, and in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6, 16. However, with the coming of the Word, the Son, Jesus Christ, a new day has dawned. And so no one has ever seen God, yet the only God, and I do think that is the better translation, some have the only begotten Son, but in the context and when you look at the issue text critically, I think the ESV got it right. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, I like the old King James, who is in the bosom of the Father, in the closest possible embrace, he has exegeted him. He has exegeted him. He has explained him to us, and he has made him known. In other words, Jesus has exegeted God to us in his words, seven great discourses in John's gospel, seven great I am statements. Jesus has exegeted God to us in his works, seven sign miracles in the gospel of John. Simply put, if you want to see God and you want to know God, just look at Jesus. He tells us all about him. Light looked down and saw darkness. I will go down, said the light. Life looked down and saw death. I will go down, said life. Love looked down and saw hatred. I will go down said love. So light came down and conquered the darkness. Life came down and conquered death. Love came down and conquered hatred. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Heavenly Father, we bless your name for your Word and the Word who came. May we love him with all of our heart all the days of our lives until we are in his presence forever. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.